1: in their position. This is True Spies. Room 39 was the centre of British naval intelligence in London. Room 39 had to come up with plans to make sure that Portugal did not fall into the Nazis' hands. And so Room 39 came up with various clandestine means to do that. And of course, Ian Fleming played a critical role in that.
0: I'm Vanessa Kirby and this is True Spies. Special Relationships part two, the Lisbon connection. The year is 1940, and if you throw a rock in Lisbon, chances are you'll hit a spy. But we wouldn't recommend it. you draw far too much attention to yourself. You see, Portugal is in the grip of a dictator, Antonio Salazar, and the streets are crawling with secret police.
1: It was a state that was run by people looking over their shoulder and wondering whether they're going to end up in jail or not because they hadn't said the right things or done the right things to support the Salazar government. It was a fascist state. Fascist,
0: maybe. But Salazar's Portugal is proud of the position of neutrality it's taken in the war. As the Nazi war machine tears through the great powers of Europe, Salazar sells crucial materials like iron ore and tungsten metal to the Allies and the Axis. Control of the Iberian Peninsula
1: would be a valuable prize for both sides. It was a huge, huge game of manipulation, if you like, to ensure that he really was on the right side and that he didn't fall into the Nazi camp and just give up and be paid off, you know, in gold for the iron ore and tungsten. Intelligence officers and their assets team the streets
0: under the cover of darkness, each of them tasked with gathering crucial intelligence that would allow them to stay one step ahead of the enemy. In the cafes, back alleys, grand hotels and brothels of Lisbon, a shadow war is waged for Salazar's soul. And at this point in the war, the British government can scarcely afford another strategic challenge from the south. The stakes are simple and punishingly high. Nobody knows it yet, but America will join the war in December 1941. In the meantime, to stand any chance of survival, the British must ensure that Portugal remains neutral. From inside the cloistered walls of the Admiralty Building on Whitehall, the UK prepares to do just that, which is where we'll begin this episode. Welcome to the second part of A True Spies Anthology about the special relationship between Britain and America. Meet the man who's going to guard you through it.
1: Hello, my name is Anthony Wells. I'm a 50-year veteran of the Five Eyes Intelligence Community of the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And I have worked for both British intelligence as a British citizen and United States intelligence as an American citizen.
0: Last time, the 50-year intelligence veteran revealed the crucial role that British naval intelligence played in bringing the USA into the First World War, forging the first link in a chain of collaboration that defined 20th century geopolitics and continues to do so to this day. In this episode, Anthony returns to fill another chapter in that long and meaningful history, the deep cover operation in the Iberian Peninsula that inspired the forerunner of the CIA. The Portuguese aspect of this mission is little known. Most historians make little or no mention of it, but Anthony assures us that during his long naval and academic career, he's had access to first-hand accounts and declassified documents which support this version of events.
1: It's an operation that
0: begins in one very important room.
1: Room 39 was the center of British Naval Intelligence in the Admiralty building in London.
0: And for the duration of the war, that room is home to one of the most illustrious names in spy fiction. He's a commander in the Naval Intelligence Division, also known as Room 39, after its room number at Navy HQ.
1: Room 39, headed by Admiral Godfrey the Director of Naval Intelligence. And of course, his personal assistant uh, that most people don't realize is a gentleman called Ian Fleming.
0: Yes, that Ian Fleming. Rear Admiral John Godfrey, Fleming's boss, was mentored by Blinker Hall, the World War I hero we met in the first installment of this anthology. Godfrey is one of a couple of possible inspirations for M, James Bond's fictional superior at MI6. Together, they worked tirelessly to preserve Portugal's neutrality.
1: Room 39 had to come up with plans to make sure that Portugal did not fall into the Nazis' hands. And if the Nazis continue to do this operational, intelligence-related nasty things to corrupt and control the Portuguese government and the flow of materials, that had to be stopped. And so Room 39 came up with various clandestine means to do that. And of course, Ian Fleming played a critical role in that. Ian Fleming is a very interesting man. He came from an extraordinarily wealthy family. That's critical to know that. His grandfather had been a very successful banker, owned banks. His father inherited the business. And his father, he had two sons. Fleming had a brother.
0: When Fleming's father died, he had little interest in following in the older man's footsteps.
1: Ian Fleming decided in the 1920s and then into the 30s that he would live a life of, he first getting highly educated, which he did, and trained militarily, which he did.
0: Living off a generous trust fund, the young Fleming attended the Royal Military College at Sandhurst at 19 years old. He lasted a year before leaving. Some sources allege that he was struck down with a venereal disease, an experience that, unsurprisingly, never found its way into his literary work.
1: Then after that, because he was so wealthy, he essentially became a European. He went to Europe, he was a big skier, He lived the life in Switzerland and Austria and socializing, living the life of not a playboy, because I think that's an unfair description of him, but certainly a well-to-do English gentleman with lots of money, lots of resources. He became a
0: journalist after a failed application to the Foreign Office. Historians have speculated that his application was rejected in case the intelligence services wished to recruit Fleming at a later date that way he would be clean of any affiliation with the british
1: government he learned multiple languages multiple languages and traveled extensively throughout europe and particularly germany
0: which is where he found himself at the start of the 1930s fleming witnessed hitler's rise to power firsthand
1: and then the beginning of the programs against the jewish population
0: these experiences combined with his upper class background made him a prime candidate for the British intelligence services at the time.
1: He was very knowledgeable, on-the-ground guy, and very smart, very athletic, um, intellectually able. Many spies were recruited from Britain's top
0: universities, but Fleming, who'd skipped that route, was in his 30s before he got the tap on the shoulder. It came at the dawn of war.
1: 1939 comes along and Admiral Godfrey feels that he needs a personal assistant, a right-hand man, someone that he can trust, talk to and tell him what I'm thinking, what I'm going to do, and go out and tell my deputies, of which he had several, you know, uh, be the interface. Rear Admiral John Godfrey had a reputation for abruptness.
0: He did not suffer fools gladly, and his parameters for foolishness were famously broad. So he needed a people person. Somebody who could smooth the relationships between himself and his subordinates. British naval officers are, as a rule,
1: straight talkers.
0: So Godfrey had to look outside his particular corner of the
1: establishment. He interviews several people. Takes them out to lunch and blah, blah, blah. And then he meets Ian Fleming. Who, remember, is suave,
0: sophisticated, continental even. By 1939... Ian Fleming had returned to London and was working in the finance industry. He'd enjoyed his time in journalism, but writing had failed to keep him in the lifestyle he was accustomed
1: to. Someone said, oh, there's this guy in the city, he's a stockbroker. He'd come out of Europe, he'd ended his, you know, years there because, you know, things were deteriorating and he wants something to do, so he goes, becomes a stockbroker. He's still living this very high-end life, and he's interviewed by Admiral Godfrey."
0: Fleming had been recommended by a Room 39 contact inside the City of London, the capital's financial district. Over lunch, the two men got to know one another. Godfrey was taken by Fleming's broad range of skills, his language abilities, German in particular, and his natural charm.
1: Godfrey comes back to his office and like tells his deputy, I found the right guy. He's my man. These other people, they're good, but not as good as this fellow Ian Fleming.
0: Fleming, never one to miss out on a new experience, took Godfrey up on the offer. He was brought into the fold via the RNVR, the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve.
1: And he came in as a very quickly promoted lieutenant commander. This rank
0: allowed Fleming access to the secrets of Room 39, despite never having served any time in the regular navy.
1: But for the duration of the war... He was a lieutenant commander and then commander of Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve, and he was the personal assistant to the Director of Naval Intelligence. At this point
0: in time, most senior positions in the British establishment, including the civil service and the financial services industry, were held by a narrow band of ex-public schoolboys. As a result, the hiring process for top jobs was fairly informal. If your face fit and you were semi-competent, Doors would always be open to you. But regardless of his formal qualifications, or lack of, Fleming was eager to get to work. And his contribution to the war effort through Room 39 justified his slightly controversial hiring many times over.
1: Room 39 was very critical in figuring out how to address the post-invasion of France and occupation of the whole of Europe, other than Spain and Portugal. What are we going to do?
0: By the middle of 1940, France has fallen to the Nazis. Britain is scrambling to establish intelligence networks in the rubble. The Special Operations Executive, a familiar name to long-term listeners to this podcast, is in its infancy.
1: We have certain connections in France. SOE is just getting going. Uh, MI6 is basically not playing much of a role. doesn't have a big underground movement in France or anywhere.
0: Emboldened by their victories thus far, the Nazis begin a mass bombing campaign of the British Isles, the Blitz. Tens of thousands of British civilians are killed or injured. Over the English Channel, Allied pilots square off against the Luftwaffe in a series of punishing dogfights in which both sides take heavy losses. Meanwhile, in the Atlantic Ocean, German U-boats prowl the waves. Threatening to cut off vital supplies to the UK.
1: So, this period from the summer of 1940, after the occupation of France, until the entry of America into the war in December 1941, is a hugely stressful time for Winston Churchill, the Chiefs of Staff, Anthony Eden, the whole leadership. Stressful
0: doesn't really cover it. Because if the Germans take Portugal, they also take the Azores. Portuguese island colony in the middle of the Atlantic and if they take the Azores then trade routes from America would be interrupted with disastrous consequences.
1: Because without the resources to keep Britain alive Britain would have you know starved to death. They were critical for the transatlantic flow of materials in terms of positioning later on aircraft for attacking U-boats from the various islands in the Azores. So there were multiple reasons why Winston Churchill was absolutely, really deeply concerned about what would happen in Portugal and the role of possibly, even if they didn't invade, the role of the German services, namely the Abwehr, SDSS and Gestapo in both controlling and manipulating Salazar and all of his friends and influence, through bribery and corruption and intimidation to support the Nazis and decrease any hope of using the ports, particularly Lisbon and Oporto, which are the two main critical ports with deep water harbours, for um, Allied shipping.
0: Churchill looks to Room 39, the Naval Intelligence Division, to provide solutions. Rear Admiral John Godfrey looks to Ian Fleming. Fleming proposes that a network of British spies in Portugal could be instrumental in maintaining Antonio Salazar's neutrality. On the ground in Lisbon, deep undercover, they would work against the Germans who were trying to sway the Portuguese dictator towards the Axis.
1: He was inspired by the fact that special ops, this couldn't be done by conventional military forces. They didn't have the structure, communications, organization or training to do this kind of undercover deep penetration work, speak the language, get into Portugal, look like a Portuguese, act like one, but be covert, have weapons stashed away places, be ready to go do their thing. If things really deteriorate, you get the order to go out and basically destroy a lot of facilities and kill a lot of very bad people on the German side.
0: So first things first, RIM-39 needed a crack team of operatives to infiltrate Lisbon and they weren't going to come from
1: the Royal Navy. Fleming essentially went out and and put together initially a collection of hugely capable people that were easily adaptable to the quasi-military environment, undercover environment, spoke languages, would quickly pick up use of explosives and all of that, and other odd people. And Fleming
0: himself was not adverse to unorthodox hiring
1: practices. One of the guys he created was a guy who served time in His Majesty's prison for being a safe-breaker and he hired him because he wanted someone he could have in Portugal who could break into anything surreptitiously and get whatever was inside someone's safe or whatever, or wherever you needed to go to break in somewhere, not just a safe. Unlike the top brass at
0: the Ministry of Defence, Fleming's organisation was fairly egalitarian.
1: Regardless of your background, if you had the right skills, you were in. And so he had people like that, and a lot of very distinguished sportsmen and athletes, um, linguists, people who were good at explosives, divers who could do the underwater detonation work, you know, who were good underwater and knew how to use limpet mines and all that.
0: Most importantly, Fleming was looking for communicators, people who could pass on intelligence as efficiently as possible
1: communications were critical. How do you clandestinely communicate without being intercepted by the Gestapo, the SS of the SD?
0: The team was assembled quickly, but it's unclear exactly when Fleming first arrived in Portugal. Some sources have it as early as June 1940, around the time of the fall of France. His remit also extended to the rest of the Iberian Peninsula. He ran parallel operations in Spain and Gibraltar. These plans came under one iconic codename, Operation GoldenEye. In Lisbon, GoldenEye had two main objectives. One, interference. German military intelligence, the Abwehr, had a number of undercover operatives active in the Portuguese capital. Likewise, the SS intelligence service, the SD, and the Nazi secret police, the Gestapo, maintained an insidious presence. Fleming's team needed to find out who these operatives were and foil them at every turn. 2. Sabotage This is the worst-case scenario. If Salazar capitulated to the Germans, then Room 39's operatives would cause havoc at Portugal's crucial ports. If Churchill couldn't have them, they'd make sure that Hitler couldn't either.
1: Those are the two strategic objectives, no question about it. And then, you know, if you want a third, it was really continuing the free flow of of trade.
0: Neutral or non-aligned ships carried essential materials to British ports from Lisbon that needed to be protected.
1: So it's a very complex scenario of undercover work to be done and also to ensure that the shipping, the trade side of things, kept flowing.
0: It was one of these neutral boats that carried Ian Fleming into the port of Lisbon in 1940. Although, naturally, in Lisbon, he was not Ian Fleming at all.
1: The cover story was that he was a banker, European banker.
0: Any overt ties to British naval or merchant ships would have blown that cover before he'd had a chance to explore its potential. You see, all the best lies contain a grain of truth. Fleming's stint in the city of London as well as his time as a younger man on the slopes of Austria and Switzerland, made his cover extremely convincing.
1: Connections to the banking network with official credentials, official recognition, the right connections, right cards, right cufflinks, right tie, right phone calls.
0: And yes, any phone call made in Lisbon was likely to be intercepted by Nazi networks. Those faultless German language skills really came into their own there.
1: They were assuming they were always intercepted when he called the banks in, uh, in Austria and Switzerland. So he knew all that, so he played the game very successfully and got away with it. All told,
0: Fleming had a very particular set of skills that made him a
1: highly effective spymaster. No typical British naval officer could have done what Ian Fleming did. I'm sure there are other people, but uh, they weren't that obvious and they didn't necessarily have his suave manner, his athleticism, his ability to look and act like he was uh, pro-German and anti-British. And what was this well-heeled
0: banker character's reason for being in Lisbon, so far from the counting houses of Central Europe? A booming property market, of course. Thousands of refugees had flooded into neutral Portugal as the Nazis marched west.
1: It was all part of this, you know, thing that was going on in Portugal and particularly Lisbon where there were a lot of people buying property, many of whom by the way were actually fleeing the Nazis, or people who just wanted to get away from, in quotes, the war, who were wealthy Europeans, not necessarily Jewish. The properties Fleming bought
0: gave his banker character a legitimate reason to be in Lisbon. It was crucial that he remained above suspicion. Those properties also doubled as buildings that his agents could use for various purposes. They were weapon stashes, safe houses and private venues for secret meetings and covert transmissions.
1: The communication side was very, very important. How do you communicate in a country where everyone's looking over their shoulder?
0: Remember, it's not just the Germans themselves that Fleming's agents have to contend with. Salazar's own secret police are everywhere, some of whom also report to the
1: Nazis. Secret encrypted communications was very important, so the way in which that was transported and stashed away and hidden and used was a huge secret, because that was the name of the game. If you can't communicate, you're in trouble. Yes,
0: it's important to communicate securely, but just as important is the ability to know what your enemies are communicating to each other.
1: And then there was the counterintelligence deception side of things, of playing games with the Germans, the whole business of the whorehouse plot.
2: Hello again, True Spies listeners. This episode is made possible with the help of June's Journey, a thrilling detective game which you can play right on your phone. If you're a True Spies listener, it's safe to assume you're interested in clandestine missions, investigative adventures, and deciphering the latest mystery. You can find all of this in abundance and more in June's Journey. In the game, you'll play as the plucky June Parker, an amateur detective in the roaring 1920s. Poor June is set to investigating in order to find the truth of her sister's untimely murder. But I don't want to give too much away. Because the fun of June's journey is seeing where this twisting story takes you. But I've just come to a grisly conclusion, thanks to working alongside other real players online as part of a detective club. Take heed, though. Not everyone wants to be June's friend. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android.
0: As we've established, Lisbon is a port city, and where there's a port, there's sailors. Where there's sailors, and we hate to generalise, there's brothels.
1: What happened was the Germans figured out that they could learn a lot of information because remember it's a neutral port, so you had foreign ships coming in there, including British ships. Those ships were full of sailors with knowledge of British shipping movements.
0: Germans saw an irresistible opportunity to collect intelligence from them. We'll apologize in advance for some outdated terminology here.
1: You could, in a whorehouse, have paid off Portuguese prostitutes who spoke English, who could extract information from sailors, whether they were British or foreign or whatever, and give information about, you know, where you've come from, what you're carrying, where you're going next, and what are you doing, basically. Many
0: sailors, grateful to be on dry land and in good company, would think nothing of divulging their next destination. But skillful German spymasters could use that data to extrapolate strategic, big-picture intelligence on the movement of shipping and the contents of ships. Portugal was an exporter of iron ore and tungsten, both of which were crucial to the British arms industry. If the Nazis knew where a ship would be, they'd be able to disrupt shipping from Lisbon to the UK, leaving the British Army without raw materials for shells, armor-piercing rounds, and
1: other weapons of war. And sailors are very vulnerable like that. They are, they certainly were in this period. Uh, I mean, they're better trained now not to, A, go to whorehouses, and B, not to ever talk about, you know, where they're going and what they're doing. But it wasn't like that.
0: Through their sources, the Room 39 operatives who reported to Ian Fleming uncovered the Nazi ruse. But rather than stop it outright, they decided to flip the script. The Germans had tapped a rich trickle of intelligence. The British needed to poison the well.
1: And so there was a game played by implanting, if you like, false information through well-disposed Portuguese prostitutes, a game that was very successfully played. I mean, just one aspect of deceiving the bad guys with false information. (laughs) In fact, Fleming's banker persona came
0: into play yet again. It allowed him to buy his own gentleman's club on the dock near the waterfront, without raising suspicion. The man he chooses to manage it, native Portuguese, is soon pleased to report that he has poached two women from a rival establishment. Both of them are known to be assets of German military intelligence. A small unit of Room 39 agents are instructed to pose as customers. During their engagements with the women, they pass on false information about ship movements in the Atlantic. Back in England, the codebreakers of Bletchley Park, another Navy-led organization, are able to track the reactions of German U-boats. By understanding how the Kriegsmarine respond to the fake intel, they can learn more about Germany's marine tactics. It's a serious intelligence coup, and not a drop of blood is spilt. It's the kind of thing that could only happen in this most unique of locations, the city of spies. But that's just one success. Until Portugal's neutrality could be guaranteed, the men of Operation Goldeneye existed in a kind of operational limbo, waiting for either victory or disaster. Until then, the game of spy versus spy would wear on, practically at a stalemate.
1: What they were doing was essentially watching and looking and listening and following and tracking and deciding who was doing what to whom and how far it was going. You can bet that the Germans were doing the
0: same thing. But in truth, Salazar was, personally, always more disposed towards the British. Portugal had historically close relations with the UK, dating back over 500 years. He disliked the racial component of the Nazi ideology and feared that his Spanish counterpart, General Franco, would welcome the Germans with open arms. But in politics, you can never take an old alliance for granted. Had his hand been forced by economic or military pressure, it's very possible that Salazar would have folded too.
1: Salazar wanted gold. Um, he didn't want Deutschmarks. He wanted gold, and so he was paid in gold. So... That's why at the end of the war there was some, eh, controversy over the amount of money that Salazar had got from the Nazis in return for payments for tungsten and iron ore. Fortunately, the world never
0: learnt the price that Salazar might have put on Portugal's neutrality. If you listen to the first episode in this series, you'll remember that by the middle of 1941, secret meetings were taking place between the British and American governments.
1: Well, the special relationship I always give the date in August 1941.
0: That's four months before the USA officially entered the war.
1: And Winston Churchill sailed across the Atlantic under escort and met the president off of um, Newfoundland in in a bay there.
0: It's here, in Placentia Bay, Newfoundland, that the tide of the war in Europe begins silently to turn. There is no paper record of this meeting that's deliberate. The hand of the U.S., as it has been in so many 20th-century conflicts, remained hidden. Prior to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941, there was little appetite for war among the American public. Even so, this was the first semi-formal intelligence-sharing agreement between the two nations.
1: So they had this grand strategy meeting and planned how to tackle the Nazi problem on the assumption that at some point the United States would enter the war, given that the US was, at that point, transferring weapons and things, often through Canada, fairly surreptitiously, to the United Kingdom because of the political situation in the United States. Weapons shipments, another very good reason to keep the Atlantic open,
0: by the way. But the historic meeting between Churchill and Roosevelt wasn't the only shadowy rendezvous to take place in 1941. Earlier in the year, Rear Admiral John Godfrey of Room 39 had flown to New York to coordinate with Sir William Stevenson, Britain's highest ranking intelligence officer in the United States.
1: He was a Canadian, came from an interesting background, very successful businessman, very rich, very, very well established, and very, very loyal to the United Kingdom. Naturally, Godfrey had brought his
0: second in command along for the ride. On the day of the meeting, the two men entered a nondescript official building on New York's Rockefeller Plaza.
1: The cover was a building which was a sort of fairly low consular place doing passport stuff and all of that, and in the back area was another area where William Stevenson operated from and was the interface between Churchill and directly with Franklin Roosevelt. When they arrive,
0: there's a fourth man at the meeting, an American.
1: Admiral Godfrey goes over, and Ian Fleming's come out of Portugal. He wants him at that meeting because this is the meeting at which Wild Bill Donovan comes up to New York from Washington. Wild Bill Donovan,
0: an American hero, no less. He's the U.S. Army's most decorated veteran of World War I. He's also an experienced spy. Godfrey and Fleming talk. Donovan listens.
1: So the meeting that takes place there in New York is the beginning of the genesis of the Office of Strategic Services because he gets the ideas from the discussions with the British and particularly Admiral Godfrey and Fleming about how he can create for America when they go into the war. Remember, this is before Pearl Harbor, a clandestine organisation to do subversive activities in Europe. Operation GoldenEye.
0: An early example of the kind of hybrid intelligence come paramilitary work that will come to define resistance efforts in Europe fascinated wild Bill Donovan.
1: And he goes eventually to England, sees how they're organized, their training, the logistics, the communications, and all of that. In
0: 1942, once America had formally entered the war, Donovan became the first director of the Office of Strategic Services, a quaint name. For a very important organization
1: and of course after the war oss was the foundation organization for the central intelligence agency in 1947. without ian fleming the landscape of spy fiction would look very different indeed
0: but it's also true that without fleming's real life intelligence work the real world of espionage might look very different too
1: donovan modeled a lot of what he got up to in oss on Fleming's organisation that he created in order to do the things that he did in Portugal and obviously other places during the, the rest of the war. Yeah, it all got put in stone in terms of legislation, covertly and overtly and all of that. But it was all about those special relationships that were built at the darkest time of the, of the war.
0: In the next episode of this anthology, we'll leap into another fascinating chapter in the life of the special relationship with returning expert Michael Smith and former CIA
1: officer Jim Lawler. Director Tenet was armed with all the intelligence that my operation had collected on Khan's treachery and said, you know, he's selling out your country. He's dealing in nuclear weapons. We can't have that. And Musharraf's reaction was, I'm going to kill that son of a bitch.
0: I'm Vanessa Kirby. Join us next time for a top-secret joint operation